According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Deuteronomy. We have not had enough Deuteronomy yet today. This is day 81. And uh, the material we're going to cover is 29, 30, and most of 31. Wow, we can slow down. We're not teaching five chapters this hour. That's kind of cool. Deuteronomy 29, 30, and uh, chapter 31, verses 1 through 29. It's about half the chapter. Before we do begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time in His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you once again thankful for truth, thankful that you are the God of truth, thankful for the Spirit of truth who indwells each one of us. And Father, we thank you for the absolute standard of eternal truth. As we live in a culture of of shifting sand, a culture of instability, a culture of, of chaos, Father, one even so insane as to deny the existence of absolutes. Father, it is a blessing for us to be anchored upon the rock. I thank you for the Uh, salvation we have by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I thank you for the stability that your word provides as we are grounded, rooted and grounded in love. So Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again to open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts. Bless us as we humble ourselves before your glory. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, remember we are covering the five farewell messages of uh, Moses as he's preparing to die. We finished the third farewell message, which is the longest of those farewell messages. And uh, we're ready now for the fifth of the farewell messages, chapters 29, 30, and 31. These chapters form the fifth of Moses' five farewell discourses. And he's going to begin this message with a here-we-are-now perspective. And every once in a while it's useful to just stop and look around and say, all right, Lord, where am I? Okay, And uh, once you get your bearings fixed on where we are, and uh, you can praise Him and thank Him for being so faithful to bring you to this point, but then ask yourself, what got me here? (laughs) Okay, And what do I want to do moving forward? Are there some things in the past that we don't want to repeat? And uh, for Israel, of course, uh, that's a great big yes. There's a lot of failures in their past that they don't want to repeat, but that's true for all of us in terms of forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. There's plenty in our past that we would not want to repeat, but God and His faithfulness has brought us through those and brought us to where we are now, and, uh, and we can look forward in the grace of God. So, picking up here in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 2, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. So he takes it all the way back to before the Exodus, starting this message with, uh, with uh, the perspective that they should be eyewitnesses to. Verse 3, the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders, yet to this day... The Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Well, that's startling. Then verse 5, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. I'm going to keep reading a few more verses down. I'm going to get to verse 13 before I stop and pick up some of these study notes. So uh, verse 7, when you reached the place, when you reached this place, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out to meet us for battle, but we defeated them. And we took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of the Manassites. So keep the words of this covenant to do them so that you may prosper in all that you do. You stand today, all of you, before the Lord your God, your chiefs, your tribes, your elders, and your officers, even all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the alien who is within your camps, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter 
into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God is making with you today, in order that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God just as he spoke to you and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right, so the emphasis here on who he's speaking to and speaking to you on this day. It is a momentous day, and we talked about it last hour with respect to the day they cross the Jordan River, the day they enter into the land, the day that they become God's people in fact as well as in promise, that they will be his people in the land he promised them, and from that day forward they uh, they should be functioning according to this law that they've been uh, that they've been taught. So Moses begins the message with a here we are now perspective. You have observed the exodus and the wilderness wanderings with human observation. And in fact, everyone that's here this day to listen to Moses say these words is, is very much mindful of the fact that their parents are no longer with us, right? Their parents are now gone. Anybody that was over 20 at the Kadesh Barnea failure is no longer uh, breathing uh, God's air, right? He, they have departed planet Earth. And so only those that were 20 and un, or under 20 or not yet born yet at the Kadesh Barnea rebellion, those are the ones that are standing before Moses to hear this message. And this note in verse 4, you have not yet received a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. That is telling, and we better pay attention to that. You have to this day, yet to this day, the Lord has not given you. And that's not an oversight. That's not God saying, oops, my bad, I forgot to give that to you, here you go. Okay? No, God is actually declaring, to this day I have not given to you, and I'm still not giving to you. Okay? Because it's a future promise that's coming up for them at the second advent of Jesus Christ. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. And I, and I think it's curious, we better pay attention to this because this is part and parcel with why God gave the law in the first place. Why he put them in a land with a conditional covenant that they couldn't keep. Why were they uh, under Mosaic law that no human could keep until Jesus Christ came and lived his perfect life and fulfilled all things in the first Advent ministry? But this was, again, by design. We get so spoiled because we're church-age believers and we're looking around us and we see who we are and where we are, what we've been given, and we fail to appreciate that the stewardships before ours never were given any of the stuff that we were given in the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, in the spiritual gifts, in the baptized union with Jesus Christ, to be positionally seated at the Father's right hand. All of these things we take for granted, they didn't have any of it. Perhaps most of all, the uh, the grace enablement that He's given us with this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the fact is He's given us the resources to obey His Word. He's given us the resources to walk in the light, to not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We can walk by means of the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh because He's provided that for us. That is built into every born-again believer today, a part of our position in Christ, is, is thank God for it. But they didn't have that. They were given a law that no one can keep and no empowerment to keep it in the first place. That is huge. Okay, So keep that in your thinking and, and it'll ho- hopefully help us to excuse them for much of what we read for the rest of the Old Testament because they do fail time and time and time again. And so they're, they're without excuse. They, they were accountable before God but we should not get too prideful and say, oh well, if I'd have been there I would have stayed faithful. Well, yeah, if you'd have been there, but you're a church-age believer priest with a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They didn't have that, all right? You also have a Greek canon of Scripture to go with your Hebrew canon of Scripture, of which they didn't have that either. And depending on what era of the Old Testament you're talking about, they only had part of the Old Testament written by the point of time in which they were failing. So that's another issue to, uh, to keep in mind. I do think, though, that these promises are useful and we should pay attention to them because they relate to other promises that are given elsewhere. Notice the rebuke that comes in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening but do not perceive, keep on looking but do not understand, render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. 
I don't have time to go into it at this point, but this is one of the challenging messianic texts of the, of the Old Testament. The Hebrew Old Testament has some very real challenges connected with it, with the Masoretic tradition. And it's puzzling because it appears that this Masoretic tradition might have been monkeyed with by the uh, second century rabbis when they were changing the chronologies in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. This is one of those passages that's so different in the Septuagint, we, f- we ask ourselves, what did the original Hebrew look like when the Septuagint was translating it, putting it into Greek, because what it looks like now is quite a bit different than what uh, the Septuagint renders it. So anyway, there's more we can get into today. But the fact is, as this looks forward to the first advent of Jesus Christ, and they rejected their Christ. They did not repent, they did not accept their Christ, they crucified their Christ, and they were judged for it as a nation when their nation was destroyed in 70 A.D., But what do we have in the future for Israel? There's a promise that they have in the national resurrection. When he brings them back as a nation and when he brings them into the kingdom for his glory. That's a difference. Okay, We can look to the 20th century and see the rebirth of the nation of Israel. We can see a partial gathering into the land, but they're there today in unbelief. All right, they're in unbelief. They're not there with the son of David on the throne. They're there with a, a, a political Knesset and a prime minister and a, and a worldly outlook on, on everything they're looking at. And they're there in rejection of Jesus as the Christ. So they've not yet reached the point that, that was promised to them of a national resurrection with the, uh, the heart to understand. But that is coming up. So uh, the promise through Ezekiel says, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put the new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. This is a part of what the Jews can look forward to. Israel has a national future in which he will give them a heart to understand. He will give them a heart to obey. He will actually work in them when he writes the law on their heart. That's one of the promises of the new covenant, that he will write his law on their heart. They will be faithful for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, really for the first time in a, in a long time. Okay, The Old Testament examples of their faithfulness are few and far between. But for the millennium, they will be the faithful nation. That is a, a clear promise. What do we have in the church? And, and by contrast, this is what we have in the church age. We have the uh, abundant church age blessings described in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you will know What is the hope of his calling? What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? We have a provision in the church age that Israel never had in the Old Testament. We can claim this. They could not. This is our blessing. So we can start every Bible class asking for the Lord to open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts. This is the provision we have in Christ Jesus, the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, and even in giving this message, he's telling them here, he says, we've had to fight impossible odds even before entering into the promised land. Remember Sihon, remember Og, remember these kings, these giants, and we defeated them. We've had to fight impossible odds even before entering into the promised land, so let's not blow it now. Obey the Lord and identify with the blessings of His covenant. Okay, so don't blow it now. Obey the Lord and identify with the blessings of His covenant. And that's uh, where he wraps it up there in verses 9 through 13. And, And I kind of think as Moses is preaching this, he has to have in his thinking, he has to have the memories of that Kadesh Barnea failure. That failure when the, he sent 12 spies out and 10 of those spies came back just terrified of the, of the Nephilim, the giants that are in the land. And here they are on the verge of going back in again and those Nephilim are still there. They're going to be encountering them and we'll see that in the conquest. And we're going to see the battles that they're going to have to fight at Jericho and Ai and, and Shechem and Hebron and all these other places and how many of these localities 
were actually stocked with demoniacs and with, and with Nephilim. That's going to be part of the spiritual warfare that precedes the earthly warfare of the conquest. So stay tuned as we discuss that. All right, so now, having reviewed where we are and what got us here, now, in verses 14 and 15 um, and the verses that follow, Moses reminds Israel that the Lord's covenant was not just with them, but with the patriarchs and the elders who have preceded them and the generations of Israel that have yet to come. And this is really, it's a humbling thing that Israel ought to pay attention to, that we in the church ought to pay attention to, that God is not done with Israel. Indeed, he can never be done with Israel. He has made eternal promises to the Jewish people. Just because we're in this parentheses right now in the church age does not change the fact that he made eternal promises to the Jewish people. Those promises still stand. Those promises are, God's still bound by what he has declared that he intends to do. So recognize that as well. All right, let's look at 14 through 21. Because he says, Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. See, it spans multiple generations. For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you would have seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which they had with them, so that, they were, so that uh, there will not be among you a man or woman or a family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood." This is kind of wishful thinking on Moses' part because the fact is they do still have idols with them that uh, Joshua is going to have to command them to root out uh, in the book of Joshua. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but, night, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man, and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Has this got your attention yet? The idea of a blotted out name? Then the Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. All right, that gets us down through verse 21. And boy, the threats in this are pretty pretty dark. So Moses reminds Israel that the Lord's covenant was not just with them, but with the patriarchs and elders who have preceded them, as well as with generations of Israel that have yet to come. And in a sense, we can claim this as well with the body of Christ. We, can, we recognize the body of Christ is bigger than just the current generation, bigger than just the, 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 the saints that are alive today in the world today. We've got 2,000 years of, of departed saints. Most of the, the bride is with the Lord right now in heaven already. It's just the last of us that are lingering here in diminishing numbers, it seems. Uh, waiting to finish the bride, and then and then will the whole bride be complete? I think that's useful. I think it's useful for us in the church to consider that, but more so for Israel because they've got thousands. I mean, all the years from Moses to Christ, and then the future that they have in front of them still. Not to mention the thousand generations that will follow uh, the on the new heavens and on the new earth. So. In light of this perspective, Israel should be careful to learn from the idolatrous failures of their parents. You know, you, you saw what happened to them. They died in the wilderness. We've been in this 40-year uh, delay ever since, Kadesh Barnea. Now we're on the verge of the conquest. Don't blow it now. In light of this perspective, future generations should be careful to avoid this idolatrous failure as well. So learn from the past and set a good example so that the future generations can imitate your victory and avoid your parents' defeat. Remember, this, uh, this actually gets featured in uh, 1 Corinthians and other places in the New Testament. These things that are written in earlier times are written for our instruction, and we should be learning from all the Old Testament examples that we have. Which gets us to verses 22 through 28. Moses taught that in generations to come, this precise idolatry is certain 
to happen. Judgment is going to be severe, and the example will be set for the Gentile nations to learn by. So this gets pretty um, gloomy with respect to this. Same thing with last hour. These chapters are ending on these, on these downer notes as Moses is just laying it out there in plain language. Now the generation to come, your sons who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases which the Lord has afflicted it, will say, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows in it, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. So when they're looking at a depopulated Israel, when they're looking at a devastated land of Israel, and the Jews gone, they're going to have a testimony, and that testimony is, God is faithful, Israel rebelled. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? So now during the Babylonian captivity, this was their chance to testify to that. When they were returned back in the Persian times, they were back in their land again. But then after the Romans swept them away, the churches had the opportunity to testify to that. That uh, God is faithful to his covenant promises and Israel's current removal is more testimony to God's faithfulness. So why has this great outburst of anger? And the men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they have not known and whom uh, he had not allotted to them. God gave them a land, he gave them uh, inheritance, he gave them blessings, he gave them worship, he gave them the law, he gave them sacrifices, but he didn't give them any of this idolatry. They got that from you know, the world around them. They got that from their neighbors and their uh, uh, fellow idolaters. Therefore the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is this day. And so those Gentiles that are observing and speaking are going to be able to testify to God's faithfulness when Israel is under judgment. But they can't be prideful. Just like the church can't be prideful. We can't say, oh, we're much much better than them because they've been broken off and we've been grafted in. Slow down now. They have a future and God will restore them. After this time of judgment is complete, He will restore them. They will be repentant. Got to be mindful of that. So this passage is, is interesting and I think we have, like I say, we have the multiple fulfillments the northern kingdom was swept away by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was swept away by the, by the Babylonians. And then after the returnings, the, again, the nation was dispersed because of the Romans. Dispersed uh, in 70 AD, but even dispersed greater than that in 135 AD. The second dispersion was far worse than the 70 AD uh, dispersion. And so those, uh, the history of those years, I think, is, is very important as well. The chapter concludes with a governing principle, uh, in fact a governing principle for Israel's stewardship and a governing principle for our stewardship. In fact, the, uh, the, the, this is true in any dispensation. The chapter concludes with a governing principle for every dispensation. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. That's a perspective. This was one of Gary Williams' favorite Bible verses ever. And and I think he was exposed to this uh, shortly after his salvation in in Houston. And um, one of the the Bible teachers, he got saved in the Star Hope mission in in Houston. And uh, he didn't want to get saved, he just wanted to get off drugs. And uh, so he he went through the rehab and he got off the drugs. And then when uh, they were preaching the gospel and, and he accepted that, then he got saved on top of everything else. And uh, But one of the verses they would stress was this one here, the secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. And, uh, and I think about this a lot, and, and um, I think I've come to appreciate it almost as much as Gary has in, in these things. Believers should not worry about the future unrevealed things. If God hasn't made it known, don't sweat it. He's got a handle on that. But if He has made it known, we're accountable. 
He's given it to us, and to whom much is given shall much be required. We better be paying attention. And even more so than Israel, I can understand how Israel would accept this. The things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. So with their Hebrew scriptures, with their revealed canon in the Hebrew scriptures, they have accountability to live it out and all that. But we have double accountability because we have the Greek canon of scripture as it reveals the the material for the body of Christ, for the church age and our, our applications. We also have still, we haven't thrown away our Hebrew Bibles, we still have our Old Testament. We can learn from their example and our example both. We're doubly accountable in, the, in this regard. So believers should not worry about the future unrevealed things. Believers have enough accountability concerning the things already revealed. And this has to be a, a challenge and I, I fail at this and every now and then I have to remind myself and say okay, uh, particularly in uh, things like the angelic conflict, things with angels and Nephilim. So we know what we know. We know because we have glimpses and we have hints but we have to guard against exceeding what is written and going beyond what we know for a fact. And, and so it's useful to, uh, to just accept what he's given and study it and learn it and then if we want more until God writes a new Bible, we better just stop. <laughs> okay, We better master what he's given us in, uh, in this one. All right. Well, let's look at chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. So it will be, let's look at verses 1 through 5, the Lord's judgment and the dispersion of Israel are not the end of the story. God will regather Israel and establish them in the land. And I think a lot of folks don't realize this is in here. I think a lot of times um, maybe Torah is neglected or if it's, if it's paid attention to, it's paid attention to because of Genesis and Exodus. And then Leviticus throws people off track and then they don't bother with what follows. <laughs> okay? And especially when Deuteronomy seems so redundant. It seems to be repeating everything that was previously given in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Why am I wasting my time here with Deuteronomy? Well, that's the wrong approach to Deuteronomy. There's a lot in Deuteronomy that's unique to Deuteronomy that's not a rehash of what's been given before. And specifically, there are Messianic prophecies Second Advent uh, prophecies, prophecies of the regathering, prophecies of the kingdom that uh, if, you're, if you're sloppy with the Old Testament study, you might think that they were introduced by Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets. You might think that it was not until after the captivity that God started giving them encouragement about a restoration. And if that's what you think, then that's not correct. The actual first promise of restoration was given by Moses. And it's given in very clear terms that there will be a dispersion and there will be a regathering before the kingdom blessings can be realized. And so we see it here. Let's look at these first five verses. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. So that first verse actually tells us a lot. It's not telling us about uh, the, the Assyrian captivity where the Assyrians took the ten tribes. That's not all the nations. Or it's not talking about the Babylonian captivity where the Babylonians took the southern two tribes. That's, again, that's not all the nations. But this is speaking of a global dispersion. Calling to mind these doctrines in all the nations, plural multiple nations around the world where the Lord your God has banished you and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. And I think it's interesting too when they, when they did return to the land under Zerubbabel, under Ezra, under Nehemiah, um, that's not the fulfillment of this promise. That's not the fulfillment of the global dispersion and return. That is still future. That is still waiting for the future fulfillment after the church age, after the tribulation. This is after the the wrath has been poured out. Only then will they call these things to mind and call upon him whom they pierced. You know, returning to the Lord your God. You know, when Zerubbabel led them back 
it was a small fraction. Ezra led back another small fraction. Uh, Nehemiah led back another small fraction. So that different estimates by different scholars, but you take three waves of returning from captivity, and do you know what the ratio is for those Jews that returned to the land versus those Jews that decided that they had life pretty good in Babylon, things were going great back there? I've, I've read some accounts of 10 to 1, right? 10 to 1 or 9 to 1. If it was only a tithe that returned, if only one tenth returned and nine tenths remained in in, uh, in the diaspora and the the scattering of the Jewish people, then uh, even if it wasn't quite that severe, it was still a minority, a huge minority that returned. All right. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. And so he's not going to miss any of them. He's going to bring back every Jewish person from the planet wherever they may be found. Some of whom, I think, by modern times, by the time we reach today, some of whom may not even realize they're Jewish. And yet God's been tracking them from father to son to father to son to father to son. And uh, it's going to be curious to see how he fulfills these things when he, uh, when he does so. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, it gets better, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So this didn't happen in Zerubbabel's day. This didn't happen with Ezra or Nehemiah or any time at all in the past. In, in Israel's past, the Old Testament times, the New Testament times, this is still waiting for a future promise. The Jewish people today do not have the, the love of Jesus Christ in their heart. They still reject the Christ. They crucified the Christ. It's going to require the tribulation. It's going to require their virtual extermination. If you thought Hitler's Holocaust was something, just wait till Antichrist is unleashed and all of the wrath that's poured out on the Jewish people during the time of Jacob's trouble. The Holocaust is not Jacob's trouble. That's still future. Okay? It's a day that's going to make every other day pale in, uh, in comparison. But for the Lord your God to circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, this is, the, this is what's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns and when he brings them into the kingdom in uh, the coming millennial glory. So, the restoration of Israel will only happen when Israel returns to the Lord with all their heart and soul. This is what Moses promised and we learn later is a consequence of the great tribulation. And we can find some other prophets now in agreement with this. And I think I need to add uh, Jesus to this list. But let's just start with Daniel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. Daniel 12.1 says this is unique. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. So that takes everything that Israel has ever experienced, every hardship a Jewish person has ever had, that any uh, persecution that, that Jewish people have endured, including uh, you know, the, the Nazis in the 1930s, okay, 1940s, that will be forgotten. That will be in the past. Compared to the tribulation, this is unique. In that time, your people, everyone who has found written the book will be saved or will be rescued. Isaiah 10 verses 20 through 23. A remnant in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. See, that didn't happen with Zerubbabel's returning. That's still future also. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God, for though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. This is why Antichrist is given the success that he's given. In God's permissive will, he gets to be the agent of this destruction. And it's a horrifying thing. 
And of course, Jeremiah 30, deliverance from captivity. And we have chapter 30, we have chapter 31, we have the promise of the new heart, we have the promise of the new covenant. But all of these, um, you know, why uh, ask now and see if a male can give birth? Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins <laughs> as a woman in childbirth? You know, no wonder their faces have grown pale. Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. All right, so you should have a 7 in there. It just says Jeremiah 30, it should be Jeremiah 30 in verse 7. The regathering of Israel will be a worldwide regathering. That's never happened yet, that is still future. That'll be after the rapture, after the tribulation. God will regather all Israel. And he will circumcise their heart. He will circumcise their heart. The thing that he didn't do for them in the conquest, he did not give them a heart to keep his word. He will do that in the second advent. He will do that when he gathers them together and brings them into the kingdom. And when then Jesus Christ takes his seat on the throne of David, the Jewish people will have the circumcised heart prepared to obey him, prepared to love him for that thousand years. Notice the new covenant promises. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel or the house of Judah. And it is such a contrast with Mosaic law. It's an improvement in every way imaginable. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. In other words, not like the Mosaic law. Not like a conditional covenant with no empowerment that you couldn't help but break. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Again, after those days, in the context of Jeremiah, this is after the the coming tribulation. This is after the time of Jacob's trouble. This is after the time when the whole world is marching to war against Israel and uh, desiring their destruction. After those days, if somebody tries to convince you that the new covenant is in effect right now, just know that that's not correct because we haven't had those days yet. That's still future. And besides the fact we're not the house of Israel, we're not the, the Jewish people. The new covenant is made with the Jewish people. The new covenant is replacing the Mosaic covenant. We were never under the Mosaic covenant. We don't need a replacement for the Mosaic covenant. We've never been under it. But Israel needs that replacement. Israel is the one that's under this, currently under the law. They need to be provided the new covenant and the heart to obey. The heart to obey what he did not give them in uh, Deuteronomy 30 and verse 4. All right. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Remember the significance when he brings them across the river and he says, now you are my people, now you are my people in my land. But it's going to be so much more so after the second advent. They will be his people and they will have a heart to obey him as he puts his law within them. And they will not teach again, each man his neighbor, each man his brother. Keep in mind, what we're doing here today, I am teaching you. That wouldn't happen if this covenant was already in effect, if these promises were already fulfilled. Why would I be teaching you if if everybody would know the Lord? Each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Again, I would ask you to consider this passage corporately, collectively, nationally, where God is forgiving the national sins of Israel, the corporate accountability of the covenant people, forgiving their national iniquity, uh, not remembering their national sins ever again. And and because of that, I think that's where people go off the rails. I think people, they... They're, well, 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 they're not so sure, they're not so sure, they're not so sure. Then they get to the last part of that and they say, oh, well, that's got to be me because my sins are forgiven, right? And they just say, well, okay, um, I'm saved, my sins are forgiven. Um, The church has to be the recipient of the new covenant. How about that? And and so they, they go to the very end of the text and then they 
they back up and they apply all of it to the church and it's crazy. There's no need for that. It's not talking about your personal sins as an unbeliever and now a believer. It's not talking about that at all. This is the national rebellion against the Lord. And He is now restoring them as a nation. I hope this makes sense. We went to this with such great detail in the book of Hebrews because folks like to use Hebrews to try to prove the church has the new covenant. And Hebrews is saying just the opposite. Hebrews is saying that Israel will have the new covenant when the Lord returns. So the Lord will circumcise their heart and provide the spiritual empowerment for them to fulfill their responsibilities. And the Lord will bless Israel in that day because Israel will faithfully keep these laws. Now think about it. Once He gives them a heart to obey Him, once He works in them and puts His law in their heart, once He establishes this millennial kingdom, do you think the millennium is going to be half blessing, half cursing? think the millennium will be this or that? No, the millennium is going to be all blessing. All blessing, all, to, all the time, all day, every day, because Israel will be faithful all the time, all day, every day. They will be obeying Him for the thousand years. And so we have the promise in Deuteronomy 30, verses 7 through 10. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecute you, and you shall again obey the Lord and observe all His commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hands, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as He rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Now these, these ifs are very conditional here in the Old Testament and sadly uh, most of the ifs are, are resulted in, in rebellion. Israel fails and God curses them. But in the millennium all of these ifs are in the affirmative. They're all positive. They're all fulfilled because He's given them the new heart to do this. It's a great promise. Something that they can look forward to. The Jewish people can look forward to the victory that, uh, that God will supply them with. All right, verses 11 through 14. Even now Israel may abide in the word and prove to be his disciples. Even now, even before the end times regathering, even now from this generation onward, from Moses to Joshua to any generation in between, when a generation is humble before the word of God, if they're living in Christ, if they're abiding in the word of God, they will truly be disciples, living the abundant life and having the consequences. It's always positive to be living in the word of God. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us to make us hear it that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. This is a marvelous text, and, and folks ignore it because they think Paul made it up when he was writing Romans chapter 10. Paul quoted it in Romans chapter 10, but he was pointing back to Israel's original reception of this message in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And so this is marvelous. I think God has laid it out so simply. Of all the people on planet earth, it's the Jewish people that have a, the greatest claim of all because God is nearby and He's knowable. How nearby is He? Local. He lives in their midst. Okay, The Gentiles that live in the you know, farthest reaches of the earth, they're the ones that may have to cross the sea to, to visit Israel and, and, uh, and be among God's people. But God's people live right there where God dwells, where God causes His name to dwell. And so they don't have to ascend to heaven to get a message. God has descended to earth and give, given Israel His law. And likewise, they don't have to sail the oceans. He lives in their midst. The Word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart. And this is, uh, I think, a testimony to what the ideal is as you're taking in the Word of God and treasuring it in your heart. The psalmist said, I have treasured thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That it's got to be a, a living part of your existence, not just a formal thing. If you're a legalist or you, you follow ritual and you think that being a good religious person counts for something. No, you've got to be living the Word of God on a, on a reality basis. And it was available. 
It was available to them in their day, just like it was available to Job in his day. It's available to the church, obviously, in our day. God has always had His Word available for anybody that's hungry for the Word of God. Blessed are those who hunger, they shall be satisfied. God's in the feeding business. And any believer that's hungry, any unbeliever that's hungry for truth, God's going to get them the gospel. And any believer then, that that once they're saved, if they're hungry for the truth, God's going to lead them to where they can find the truth. These these are the uh, testimonies to God's faithfulness. Anyway, I, I would like to take this text and what I do in the notes here is I relate them to what it means to be living in the Word of God. John eight thirty one, If you abide in my Word, then you are truly disciples of mine. To be a disciple is not to be saved. To be saved, you just believe in Christ and you're saved. But not everybody that's saved is a disciple because a lot of folks are saved and they never live in the Word of God. But if you continue, if you remain, if you dwell, if you abide, if you live, the verb is meno. Okay, We studied that in a series last year before we launched Through the Bible. It was a preparation study for Through the Bible called Abiding in the Word. That means, that means more than just visiting it occasionally. Okay, A place you visited a handful of times, you don't live there. But a place you live there, you remain there consistently, you're there a lot, you're there all the time, you know it inside and out. You feel at home there, you feel like you belong there. That's what we're supposed to be in the Word of God. If you minnow in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It's pretty pathetic. It's, I, I find, you know, it's sad. It's predictable, but it's sad. The non-disciple believers, and we know them, they're not living in the word. They will go to heaven when they die. We'll be happy to see them when we get there. But for now, they're not living in the word, and they're slaves. They're slaves to sin. They are just as worldly-minded as the unbeliever is because they're not being renewed in their mind. When they're not being renewed in their mind, they're being conformed to this age. And it's sad how somebody can have eternal life but not be living in that newness of life that God has made available. So anyway, I take this um, passage and I relate it back to Deuteronomy 30 and I say, you know what? It, it was, it didn't, you don't have to be a church-age saint to apply this. Any believer of any stewardship could live in the Word of God that was available to them at that time. Job could live in the Word of God that was available to him at that time, and we don't think he, there was nothing in written form. We don't even know what, how he learned doctrine in those days. But he had a lot of it. Living in the Word of God. Romans 8.4 the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Living in the Word of God, living in the Spirit rather than in the flesh. Now this is for our application because we have this provision. Israel didn't have this provision in the Old Testament. They will get it in the millennium. Israel will have the Holy Spirit when Jesus returns in Second Advent. But you see how Paul quotes this Moses writes that the man who practices righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. They actually could live in that word, abide in that word, and, and you know they didn't have the permanent Holy Spirit, but they could still live the word of God, abide in it, and apply it. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven. See, on a faith basis... If Israel was walking by faith, then the reality was theirs. Who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. So he quotes that from Deuteronomy. In your mouth and in your heart. And that's when he goes off to talking about if you confess with your mouth and if you believe in your heart. And a a verse that really messes a whole lot of people up. To try to create a two-step salvation process there with the, the mouth step and the heart step and, and or making confession a requirement to be saved that you have to believe and confess. Um, just an abuse of that text. All right. So living in the Word of God. And, and obviously we have examples because the, the, the guy that wrote Psalm 119, you talk about a brother that was abiding in the Word of God all over the place. Every verse of Psalm 119, that's a, that's a brother that was saturated with doctrine. That's a believer that lived in the Word of God day by day. So much so that even his elders were, were didn't have the maturity that he had because he was living in the Word. 
Other examples, you know, with David and so many more, a man after God's own heart, Old Testament saints living in the Word of God. That was available for them. All right, finally in verses 15 through 20, Moses lays it out one more time as an either-or message for Israel to volitionally take hold of. We've seen a couple of these already, these take-it-or-leave-it kind of approaches, this choose-you-this-day-whom-you-will-serve type of messages. Uh, Joshua is going to give one of those in Joshua 24. You know, how long are you going to keep serving idols? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Uh, So these messages come up again and again, like, uh, I've set before you life, I've set before you death, choose life. Okay, it's a Uh, (laughs) no-brainer. The option is there. Moses lays it out one more time as an either-or message for Israel to volitionally take hold of. He says, see, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. So you got this on the one hand, you got that on the other hand. And it's right there. Make your choices. Live properly. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. I mean, it's right there. This is the day. And Moses is going to die and Joshua is going to take him and they're going to cross into the land. And, and it's, it's just laid before them. Are you going to live the word of God? But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, well, sadly, you're going to get what you're going to get. And this is the promise. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish you will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. So there's witnesses. The angels are watching. The blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. I mean, which way you want to go with it? It's so obvious. This is the way of life and blessing. This is the way of death and cursing. Seems like a no-brainer to me. Choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. By loving the Lord your God and obeying His voice, by holding fast to Him, for this is your life and the length of your days. Anything else, anything else you swap it out for, anything you substitute for, when you decide that Baal has something going for, or you like those Asherah poles, or something else is going on in the, the Moabite women, or the Jezebel women, or whatever it is, Whatever the influence is that causes you to think that it's preferable to the Lord God, it's not. God says, it's my way or judgment. So this is life. By loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, by holding fast to Him, for this is your life and the length of your days. If you abandon that, you're throwing away your spiritual life that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. And time and time again, we see this played out in the Old Testament, time and time again, just like, do you think that the Kadesh Barnea was the only time that God ever just said, that's it, and he marked the conclusion to a generation and says, uh, blessings will resume when you're all dead, right? That will start with the next generation. And time and time again, we get that. We're going to get that throughout the book of Judges, There's a tremendous cycle throughout the book of Judges where they have obedience and followed by disobedience, followed by judgment, followed by deliverance, followed by a season, you know, a lifetime of that judge, and then it's back into idolatry again and God gives them back over. That cycle gets repeated and then into the kingdom and the divided kingdom and then the captivities. Finally, God gives the land a 70-year reset, a a rest so that the land can recover from all of the the pollution that Israel had damaged it with in all the years of their darkness. All right, so that's how chapter 30 comes to an end. We still have to cover about 19 verses here, I think, of um, chapter 31. Let's see. 29 verses? Yep, it's 29 verses. And then tomorrow is, the next message starts with chapter 30. 31, 32, also Psalm 90. All right, we can do that.
Yeah, yeah, because 29 is practically the end of the chapter. Then we just have verse 30 that starts the song. Okay. And we have a little bit of time. All right. Everybody awake? Let's do chapter 31. Moses concludes his fifth farewell message on his 120th birthday. All right, so let's sing happy birthday to Moses. Okay, let's not. Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel and said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to come and go. And the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. So here at the end of his life, uh, the years are finally catching up to him. He's very uh, mobility uh, compromised, and which is fine because he's done traveling anyway. This is the occasion of his death. And in uh, and, and his judgment, he can't go into the land. He, remember, he struck the rock and forfeited his blessings of going into the land. So, Moses, uh, and, and there is some question on some of the dates. The rabbis like to dispute. So the month Adar, there are two Adars, because they have a month, and then in some years they have a leap month, and Adar gets a second month. And so I read one tradition where they, they mark his birthday uh, in one Adar 1 and then his death day in Adar 2. And I've read different disputes on that. Um, anyway, different things on that. And it doesn't matter anyway, who cares? Uh, but the only, the only connection I have with it is I was looking at my, my dad uh, and his Yarzite. His Yarzite was on the, the 7th of Adar. And uh, that matches up with Moses' birthday and his death day and, and the issues there. Anyway, no big deal. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. So Moses encourages Israel that their faith is in the Lord and not in their human leader. It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy the nations before you and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you just as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them just as he did to Sihon and Og, the king of the Amorites, and to the land which he destroyed them. So don't get all disappointed that Moses isn't going with you. The, the, the change from Moses to Joshua won't affect the, the thing because the Lord's the one that does all the fighting anyway. And the same victory that you had over Sihon and Og, you're going to have a, a similar victory over Jericho and Ai and all the cities there. Even though Moses isn't with you anymore, it's not, it's not the man, it's, it's the Lord that's, that's giving these, these victories. So the Lord will deliver them up before you and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and very courageous and do not be afraid or tremble at them for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Again, people think this was made up in the New Testament. No, the New Testament's quoting the Old Testament. This is the, uh, the covenant promise. So Moses charges Joshua to lead by example and demonstrate the strength and courage Israel must possess. It's kind of interesting. After he preaches to the people, be strong and courageous, he then preaches to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. You shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. You shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Finally, Moses concludes his written works. So Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests. And again, time and time and time again, I don't know about you, oh, I'm over time now, I owe you a minute. Um, and I owe you four minutes from the other night, so I'm, I'm banking up a lot of minute debt here. The, um, Moses wrote this law. Look at that, Moses wrote. Because all the liberals say Moses couldn't write. All the liberals say that the Jews were practically illiterate until they went to Babylon. All right, but we have time and time again the testimony that Moses was a writer, that he was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was probably the most educated man of his day. Eminently qualified to be writing the law. The author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Psalm 90, which we'll look at next hour, probably the, the, uh, the book of Job. If not the original author, he put it into Hebrew from possibly a, a Midianite original or something else. And so these written works as inspired scripture endure to this day in their current form. All right, you know what? We need to, let me pause here. I'm going to pick up with this after our break. 
And then we'll do this next hour because this is this is Psalm 32, uh, 32 and Psalm 90. Yeah, we can do this next hour. Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 90. All right, we'll save those for next hour. Deal? Deal. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this message. Thank you, Father, for all your grace. Uh, we've been a little behind the curve all three hours, but uh, you're going to get it finished next hour. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.